You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You talk about the left and the right axis, but I think that there's another axis that needs to be considered now in American politics, which is the establishment axis and the anti-establishment axis. The current DNC, particularly the Clinton side of things, comes from a mentality of 1980, 1984, 1988. Loss, loss, loss. I think it is the thing that Trump has done effectively, which is he promised a tangible. He promised a wall. Now, whether or not that wall gets made is a discussion for another day. Mm -hmm. But there is a tangible promise that someone can hold in their hand. And I think for the progressive left and for that populist base, they are also going to want a tangible thing they can hold in their hand. My guest today on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a voice that will be familiar to my listeners, Chris Novenbrino of Don't Worry About the Government. I have been on his program several times, and now he is on mine as a political analyst. Now, Don't Worry About the Government is at www.dontworry.tv. The other thing that Chris Novenbrino has done is the theme for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. If you like it, and if you have a podcast that you need music for, why don't you give him a ring over at uh, Don'tWorry.tv? He's awfully good at it. Joining me now, Chris Novenbrino. Thank you so much for having me, Bruce. It's my pleasure. Oh, Great to have you on here. And I think we're going to discuss a bit about the left. I think... That with everything going on in the politics, we have a GOP Congress, a GOP president. There's been such a focus on the right in American politics and the left has been sidelined. But I think it's critical to understand what's really going on with the left because it explains the 2016 election and it explains the 2017 politics that we have now. And I believe you do, too. So let's talk a bit about that. Absolutely. So I think if you are looking at the divisions in the left, uh, they are just as extant as they are in the right. Right now, the political right has mainstream establishment Republicans, and then you have Trumpism, which is its own very specific subset of right-wing values. On the left, however, during the 2016 primaries, we saw through the rise of Bernie Sanders a coalescing and a full manifestation of the rift between the neoliberal sort of democratic establishment and the populist left, which is more progressive and would be more likely to use terms like progressive. And then even to the left of the progressives, you have the Greens, who are even more hardline. But the progressives and the left, and, and this is what I think is different from years past, 
are now at a point where they are moving to things that they are becoming non-negotiable on. So the Democratic coalition has to thread this needle, in my opinion, of how do we create a coalition that is both the neoliberals and the progressives and keep the progressives on board in a meaningful way? Because you could see that coalition get broken apart in another election and then they lose in 2020 and that would be terribly embarrassing. I think there was a Philadelphia moment, uh, call it what you will, where there was this huge crack in the party at that DNC convention in Philadelphia. And what we might have saw was like an Instagram filter put on the party, maybe like, I don't know whether it was Juno or one of the others, where you didn't see the divisions because they weren't allowed to be televised. But you had little hints like the California delegation, which was mostly supporting uh, Bernie Sanders, were very loud at that convention at different parts and anything that involved like supporting the military or any of those policies they were shouting back at. And while there was a platform etched out, it was pretty clear that uh, not all the left was unified in, in their support of the candidate and that reflected in the total. Now, it wasn't like 40, 60 percent. I think it was more of a 90, 10 thing. But that 10 percent or 15 percent, whatever it was of, say, Sanders voters that didn't support Clinton in some of those critical states, you know, might have had a big. A big impact on the outcome. Yeah. And to go back to Philadelphia, I think a key moment for progressives uh, that was internalized was the moment where Al Franken and Sarah Silverman got on stage and Sarah Silverman said, Bernie Sanders supporters, you're being ridiculous. people you're being ridiculous and this is after you know bernie was sort of backburnered in terms of speaking at the convention and i think a lot of bernie sanders people felt as though they weren't going to be heard and i think the other mistake there for the democrats sort of long term is that al franken in my opinion is one of the few guys that the establishment democrats have that can uh offer stuff that would appeal to the progressive populist base, like the fact that Franken's willing to mix it up more. But he's now been sort of saddled with that moment. I don't think it's, you know, career ending or anything like that, but it's something that could be a bit of an albatross. Yeah, that's a very interesting point that you just made. Uh, that's why it's good to have you on as the don't worry about the government kind of political analyst, because I think you see things from a from a different point of view than even I might. I'm a Gen Xer. You're a millennial. But it's not just that, uh, because even that Sarah Silverman moment, I remember watching coverage. I looked at moment and I said, you know what? That's that's great in a sense. Like she summed it up succinctly. For someone like me, I'm a little bit older maybe. I've seen politics. I've seen a history of politics. Political campaigns go bad. Shouting at a convention is just not going to lead to the outcome because after this convention is done, you know, another part of the election. So uh, there's an interesting dynamic. But I also certainly got that feedback as well that after the event, the reaction was, was livid for a lot of progressives. It also could be a media difference. Like on TV – that ridiculous moment is a really good moment. Like 
shut up. You're being ridiculous. TV has a way of kind of ending debate because only one person's on the TV at one time. Social media is not like that. You hear the, the backlash. Yeah, and that's where the progressive left is the most active. So in addition to sort of the progressive left that has existed on Twitter, in the 2016 election, we saw the rise of what is known now as, I don't like this term, but it's called the dirtbag left. And I think a better way of thinking about them for your listeners is this is a generation of socialist-leaning leftists who are very inspired by Howard Stern. And, and I even think there's a bit of a regional element to it, that they are largely Northeastern, and that is where the dirtbag left movement originated out of. But these are a group of people who I think are going to be very hard to reason with, and when you tell them they're being ridiculous, they're going to respond with some profanity that I probably shouldn't say on your show. But I do wonder, what do you say? Do you say nothing? If you're the dirtbag left? No, if you're the uh, DNC at this moment, what are, what are they? how do they tackle this one? Because it appears like if they say nothing, then there may be a set of issues that uh, uh, they objectively are looking at and saying, well, if we can't run with these issues, we're going to lose the election. It's too far left for us, or it's not even really matching the majority of our of our voters. But um, if we so if we don't say anything, and and things continue. For instance, like um, uh, it's not normal for at a convention, at least not a modern convention of the 21st century, to not support the candidate right running. Uh, it, like it or hate it, the conventions have become kind of like TV support events. So any opposition right. is magnified to a thousand, ten thousand degree. You know, this wasn't true in the 1940s. It was expected in those conventions that there would be fights and you didn't have like Eisenhower picked over Robert Taft in 52 or Stevenson picked in 52 until a long and drawn out debate among the principals. But in modern elections, you know, it was, that was supposed to be a coronation for Hillary Clinton. And, and again, you know, the media will pick up on any little opposition. So it's, so I think that's the challenge. Like, what does a party do in this set of new politics? Well, I, I think that you bring up an interesting historical point then, because I, I think that what the left wants is a spot at the negotiation table. And what they felt they got was a coronation ceremony for Hillary Clinton over many months, because the sort of conventional wisdom going into 2015 is that the Republicans were going to nominate probably Jeb Bush, mm -hmm. and the Democrats were almost certainly going to nominate Hillary Clinton. Right. And so for the left, and also, I guess, for the Trump base, there was this sense that they had been sidelined once again, and the Trumpism wasn't going to allow that. And on the left, I think they saw what was happening on the right. And then, you know, the elephant in the room here, but what I don't think can be ignored in the history of this is that the Russians in releasing the DNC emails and sort of showing what was going on internally with the Democrats and how they were tilting the election in favor of Hillary Clinton or the primary process in favor of Hillary Clinton, they were adding fuel onto the fire. You know, that, and that's of course uh, part of it, and I and I think that's a that's a key consideration that if we're going to, you know, if you're looking at what happened in 2016, there's a lot of narratives out there. You know, the the absolute Trump campaign uh, view would be that he campaigned harder, 
he campaigned in states that uh, Hillary Clinton ignored. Uh, you know, he was he was on the plane to Teterboro each night, but he was out campaigning all day. This kind of thing, uh, and it, he had a message that resonated with the um, resonated with the Rust Belt and and those arguments. There's another argument that oh, it was just so close, and you know. Um, Hillary Clinton just narrowly won, but it was because of the Electoral College. But there's also the split on the left. And the split on the left certainly was accelerated by the the WikiLeaks release, which, as you say, I mean, we know, I think it's fairly well established that Russians were involved with it. It, it was Julian Assange, but it, how did he get it? You know, <laughs> with the uh, exactly. Uh, the exactly. I don't want to get lost in the, the weeds. Two, in that, or, but yeah, uh, you could do a podcast if we needed to 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 connect that. But I think it's pretty well established. Um, and I think that's an that's an important consideration because that moment. Um, and from what I've heard from the few campaign Clinton campaign staffers who have talked about 2016. uh that moment was huge. Not the actual release, but when it was released and indexed and the and the big release uh, and the specific emails pointed out by Julian Assange, like, read this one, read this one, read this one. Um, I think that was the moment that was devastating for a campaign because you saw a shearing of two sides of the left. And so I think to go back to your historical example, what was probably called for at the 2016 Democratic National Convention was something more like a negotiation to try to make sure that these Sanders people, although they lost, didn't feel as though they were being told to sit in the back of the bus. And I think that the optics coming out of the convention didn't achieve that. No, they certainly didn't. Uh, <laughs> that is going down in history as one of the um, bad conventions. And you look at any party, when the party's divided, you're generally going to lose the presidential election. You go back to 1912, uh, going to, you know, you have some years where it's not divided because they know they're going to lose. Like 1932, nobody challenged Hoover <laughs> because, you know, it's the Depression. Like, I'm not going to run. So let him, let him, let the president <laughs> have his have his time and try to run for a reelection. But you have uh, other times um, – uh, 1968, where the Democratic Party is extremely divided and they just cannot win in what is a very close election. A lot of people want to vote Democrat, but don't talk about a split on the left. There's an election where you had it uh, split on the right. You had 1976 Reagan and Ford battling at Kansas City, ripping each other apart. And President Ford, in a very similar vein to what happened with Hillary Clinton, kind of collapsed his opponents, uh, shrunk the optics of dissent, but not the real dissent. And one of the classic moments of the Kansas City 76 convention is when Reagan gets to speak, and it's supposed to be that he's just going to make a little speech for Jerry Ford, hold his hand up, and all of that. The crowd just is cheering and weeping in a way that they never did for Gerald Ford. And it was just obvious on television who that convention really wanted but because of some delegate rules and locked conventions and states voting by the unit rule ford was able to win that uh, primary but they didn't win the general election 1980 right. very similar situation i think to 2016 probably the most analogous 
where you had a very left-leaning candidate, Ted Kennedy, wanted to run on traditional Democratic left-leaning issues, ran against Jimmy Carter, who he felt was too far to the right. You know, today we see Jimmy Carter as this kind of progressive guy, but they have to remember going back to 1980, within the Democratic Party, within labor circles, he was seen as, and within Congress, Democratic Congress, he was seen as a uh, more right-leaning Democrat. And that was a bitter struggle, more bitter than I think people realize, where the left was split to the point that, you know, they... They tried to get Ted Kennedy to even hold up Carter's hand, and he wouldn't do it. Um, they tried to get Ted Kennedy to do a fundraiser, to do rallies for Carter, and he really wouldn't do it. In fact, he made the Carter people do a fundraiser for him to pay his campaign debt, and he never really campaigned that much for Carter. And there was a third party in that race, and it was a Kennedy supporter, a person that supported Kennedy in the primary who ran as John Anderson's vice presidential candidate, signaling to everybody who's a Kennedy voter, hey, vote for this guy, don't vote for Carter. And so 1980 went south that way as well, very bitter divide. Now, you know, with hindsight, you can see 2016 as a very divisive um, convention and campaign on the left side of things. And uh, while it's hard to see what what you could do differently, um if you open the convention, for instance, do you signal unity or do you signal disorder? Do you lose by a larger margin? You know, all of these questions, I'm sure, haunt uh, all the campaign people now. I think a small thing you could do would be get rid of the superdelegate system. Now, of course, the Democratic establishment wouldn't say that's a small thing. But in terms of not actually committing yourself to a policy position, which mm-hmm. would be the other thing that progressive left would want. I mean, I think... A lot of these problems would never have formed if, let's say, the Democratic Party was coming out in favor of single payer in 2016. Something strong and tangible. I think it is the thing that Trump uh, has done effectively, which is he promised a tangible. He promised a wall. Now, whether or not that wall gets made is a discussion for another day. Mm -hmm. But there is a tangible promise that someone can hold in their hand. And I think for the progressive left and for that populist base, they are also going to want a tangible thing they can hold in their hand. Uh, And the Democratic establishment in this current era is very technocratic and sort of very around the edges. Obamacare is an obtuse policy that was sort of designed to be a change without necessarily feeling like a change for everyone. Mm -hmm. And what members of that progressive base want is – Free college. They want free health care. Something not and not free, but like socialized or public college, public health care. Even I I would say this is a policy position the Democrats should consider is public Internet doing a public Wi-Fi system, saying that uh, access to the Internet is a basic communication service, not like telephone. Yeah, you know, it's all they're all good points. um, And um, you certainly in the wake of having lost an election, of course, the hindsight has wisdom. I mean, there's no doubt that something should have been done differently because um, I think, for instance, um, you look at the vice presidential choices. So I, I see a political, quick political solution oh, yeah. that could have been made, which is, first of all, at the very least, you put Bernie in a room and he gets a veto on the decision. 
you you may and you make that known through social media that that's going on. You know, you you live Twitter, you live tweet. We have Bernie Sanders in the room with Hillary right now. They're discussing the vice presidential candidate. Um, I think the way Philadelphia went, and especially with a view of how bad conventions go, and and looking at that one, um, even the possibility of running Bernie Sanders as the vice presidential candidate, if that's what he wanted, would have been a possibility. And I think it, you know, this is extreme hindsight. It's not an idea. It is an idea that I had at the time of Philadelphia. It's not an idea I had the whole campaign when Bernie and Clinton were were running against each other. Um, but it's an idea I, I did think about around the time of Philadelphia was, um, you know, and minimum a much more inclusive process, and possibly including running him, running Tulsi yeah. Gabbard, like somebody that was a was a Bernie acolyte that everyone knew. Um, so that you have, that's the reason you have a ticket. You know, there are historic mechanisms to solve some of these problems. Picking Tim Kaine, I think, got you Virginia. To me, it was kind of it gave a, us Kaneomania on Don't Worry About the Government. <laughs> Kaneomania, you were that hashtag was going for a good, um, was it? 25 minutes or no, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was a solid half hour. I was really cranking them out on Twitter. <laughs> gain a mania. I mean, you know, um, I don't know, maybe to win Virginia. It was such a conservative pick. Um, maybe to, uh, uh, we talked about it last year that it, you know, using the football analogy that it was just playing it safe and prevent defense type thing. And, uh, you know, maybe to win Virginia, but you won Colorado without picking a guy from Colorado. So I, I think those states were in her column. So um, that was a that was a mistake um, at the I, I think just more inclusion in the process. Hey, if the end result was Tim Kaine, but Bernie Sanders was in a room and walks out with arm in arm with uh, with Tim Kaine, you know, that makes a big difference. These are the way you solve these problems historically. And there definitely was in that Clinton campaign, this kind of. Uh, override mentality. Now, having slammed them a bit, let me let me give you uh, provide some historical context to why I think all of these things happen on on the the more establishment side of the Democratic Party right now, and I think it's historic. And those that have been you know aware of politics for a long time and have seen elections. I think the current DNC, it's particularly the Clinton side of things, comes from a mentality of 1980, 1984, 1988. Loss, loss, loss. Beat up in three consecutive presidential elections, trying to be somewhat leftist. I mean, the 1984 campaign for its time running against Reagan was an extremely, you know, anti-nuclear um uh, positive on health care, on labor unions, a very kind of like left-leaning campaign, ran a woman to, for vice president, which in the 1980s was a very radical thing. Um, it's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.
I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. I think that the entire structure is still coming out of that 1990 structure, which was we got to start winning again. And um, the superdelegate system certainly came out of that structure. That was after the 84 debacle that they then decided to go with the there's got to be something more than just the actual delegates themselves deciding because in the end of the day, we the party has to win an election in the fall. And whatever you do to make people happy within the party, you got to win all the voters in the fall. And they were seeing a disconnect between the Democrats, particularly at that time, and, you know, the, the power of labor unions and um, certain activists and the rest of the party and the, the American voters as an electorate, you know, 50 states. So I think that, that's what that entire establishment thinks about. Uh, that being said, you know, the primary probably should have been more of a wake up call that things needed to change a bit. I completely agree. I think that what you saw with Bernie Sanders, and this is honestly a problem for the progressive left going forward, is that Bernie Sanders is the perfect encapsulation of who the progressive left are circa 2016. And so all of your points about involving Bernie Sanders in the process of choosing a vice president or even choosing Bernie Sanders as vice president. I think if Bernie Sanders was vice president, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are the current administration. I, I, I think that's pretty open and shut, uh, especially in these states where she lost, like Michigan and Wisconsin. I think if they had Bernie up there in campaigning, it's a completely different ballgame in those states. I actually think he makes a heck of a VP candidate. I, I think more than putting him on the top of the ticket where you would have had a new set of issues. As a VP candidate, it's like the two wings of the bird, I think, uh, for that party. And, you know, uh, in other elections, there's been all kinds of crazy tickets like that. Kennedy Johnson. Most I just had Thomas Oliphant on earlier this year. Most experts agree he never would have won without Johnson on that ticket. But he couldn't be farther apart from Kennedy politically. And labor unions hated him, tried to get him off the ticket. But that's what you do in parties. And, uh, yeah, it just seemed like 2016. It's, wrong. it's the idea of a unity ticket, right? And that's you know, the concept at its best. The unity ticket is meant to make people who would vote for that ticket feel that someone on that ticket represents their point of view in the world and that there will be a debate. And obviously, you would rather have your person, your preferred candidate, 
at the top of the ticket. But even if you are the vice president and not the president, if you feel like you've got a strong VP representation there, you're going to get on board and vote for this ticket. I, I don't think any – I mean, there are going to always be some people who vote for the libertarian and some people who vote for the green. But I really don't think that there would be – a rational Bernie Sanders supporter who would go, oh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders is a ticket. Well, I'm not going to vote for that because Bernie's not the president. He's the vice president. I, I think that they would have come around. They would have had maybe sour grapes for a couple of weeks, it, and it would have passed relatively quickly the second they saw Bernie debate Mike Pence, and you have this staunch Christian conservative against their guy. And it, that was like a tailor-made debate to unify the party. Right, and I think they're, they're, they're and, and it's, it's, it's probably something you have more authority to say with uh, your observations of politics uh, uh, that you do on don't worry about the government uh, on a continuous basis but i think that uh, it might be tempting to say hey this is a new world and these things like unity tickets don't exist but i just i look at it with my usual history lens and i just see it as hey these are historical mechanisms that were used in the 1920s you know were used in the 1800s was used in 1960 and Yes, even even with Carter Mondale in 1976, it was Carter was seen as a Southern governor, a little more conservative. Mondale was a liberal senator from Minnesota. You, these mechanisms exist, and I think it would have been appealing in in 2016, and they would have found that you know those those votes in Michigan uh, would have Bernie out every week campaigning instead of just once in a while. So I think that, uh, and then yeah, there would have been a seat in the process because. Not only do you have the possibility that a vice president could become president, I mean, that, that's probably not the one to focus on too much, but the just being a seat at the table, it's, it's particularly today a vice president's very powerful. And um, that was a missed opportunity. I think just some of the signals that the Clinton campaign didn't read right during the debates, that this was more than just policy debates between Sanders and Clinton. Maybe on the debate stage it was, but on the in the Twitter debates and in the social media debates, it was much more about character, but a kind of left character, you know, about corruption, about Goldman Sachs speeches, about money and and uh, things like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there is definitely something to that because the fact that Hillary Clinton had baggage made people look at Donald Trump's baggage not in a way that I think they would have looked at it if it was just Donald Trump in a vacuum. Like, if we were just actually doing a moral assessment of this guy's character, I, I think people would have made a, a different rendering on it. And I guess if you look at the popular vote, they did. But Hillary Clinton and her baggage, you know, the emails, all this sort of stuff, I, I think it served as a bit of an albatross. And and I want to agree with the point that you made earlier about the unity ticket, which is I think that these are useful things. It worked in the past, right? And if you're going to say that something worked in the past, like a unity ticket, and it's not going to work now, I, there has to be some sort of case made for why that can't happen, mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't really see a clear case for that right now. Uh, the one difference, I think, between this Democratic Party and the Democratic Party of the 1980s is where they are losing is inverted. So they were always losing the presidency during the 1980s, but they had Congress. And now through gerrymandering, they're always losing Congress. But, I mean, theoretically, they had the presidency three times in a row. I mean, obviously, Hillary Clinton didn't win the Electoral College, but she won the popular vote. I'm not saying that should make you president. But I, I think that there's certainly a case that if she had done 
a handful of things differently, she wins the presidency. So I, I think that their issue is not so much on the presidential side, on the national side now, as it is on the congressional side. And so that that creates a new set of problems that are different. Yes. And they, uh, the Democrats, yeah, right, had the Congress from actually from 1954 to 1994, had the House completely. Uh, now, it's it's you have to be clear that it was a kind of different type of Democrat. It was a Southern Democrat that were leading the party. They would rotate the speakership between North and South just to to just an how evident it was that the Southerners were important in the Democratic uh, Party. Um, you had some, a very conservative Congress, but it still was a Democratic Congress. And, and I think where you saw that was during the Reagan presidency, yeah, they'd lose some votes. But if Tip O'Neill said this is a party line vote, as he did, for instance, on some of the anti-Contra votes, in other words, you cross me, you're crossing me and you'll be punished. Um, it still gives you the ability to do that. It still gives you the speaker's gavel. And so it is true that it was a different type of day. It wasn't a liberal Democratic Party that controlled Congress those years necessarily. But it was it was at least an army that could be summoned for uh, a cause here or there if one wanted to enact a liberal policy. I mean, Sam Rayburn was a conservative Democrat from Texas, but was trying to pass Kennedy's legislation, not always successfully uh, prior to his death. Um, and that's that's what you got. You know, he he would go visit Kennedy and say, well, I got the votes for this, so I don't. But um, Democrats benefited from gerrymandering at that time. Gerrymandering's gotten more intense. The computers are better. The, the maps are better. Um, the knowledge of, of it and the will to use it is, is stronger. But they certainly did gerrymander California during the Reagan years to get a, a state that voted for Reagan to give a majority to the Democratic House. But um, now, obviously, that's gone the other way. Uh, so that is challenging for them. I agree that they probably should have won this 2016. Uh, probably should have been a Democratic win. Another factor is a huge vote for third parties, too. And it kind of shows the weakness of that it wasn't really a Republican ticket win necessarily, but just a didn't want to vote for Clinton. And, and some of that came from the left, notably the Jill Stein. I mean, what do we see in the future for for that particular group? Those, uh, what was it, uh, maybe a million voters for, for Jill Stein? Yeah, the Greens. Uh, they're really interesting, and I think Jill Stein is a very interesting figure that we're going to find out more about here in the coming months and probably years as this Russia investigation continues. But her strategy was different from third-party candidates of the past and honestly different from any sort of – strategy that I would advocate for a third-party candidate to try to get to federal matching funds. Jill Stein chose to take her campaign largely into battleground states. She was in Wisconsin. She was in Michigan. She was in Ohio. She was in Pennsylvania. And I thought it was a very curious strategy if your goal is to arrive at 5% in the popular vote for federal matching funds, because you would think that mm -hmm. someone like Jill Stein would be more predisposed to go to Washington, Oregon, California, mm -hmm. safe blue states, New Mexico, where you know that there are more liberal voters and it's much easier to make the pitch of, hey, the state's already going to vote for Hillary Clinton. You don't have to have Trump guilt on your hands. Just come and vote for me. Jill Stein took a very different approach, and so I think she was disruptive. Uh, I, I think that this is something that the party is going to have to deal with and the movement is going to have to deal with uh, because Jill Stein isn't actually really 
advocating anything. Her policy positions are essentially a she wants a peace offensive mm-hmm. and she wants a Green New Deal. And I'm not making those phrases up. Those are actually things she says. Uh, so I don't know how you go to a negotiation table with someone like Jill Stein and promise her a peace offensive. Like, I, I don't even really know what that would entail. It, and I don't really know how you promise a Green New Deal and you know arrive at the growth that people who are proponents of the Green New Deal suggest. I think it's a good idea, a noble idea, to invest some government funds into changing our energy to renewable energy to reduce the impact on the environment and create some jobs along the way and do some infrastructure repair. That's a function of government. But the idea that this is going to save the economy is not very likely. But this is a difference between the Democratic Party that we're discussing from the 1980s and their internecine fights versus now. It, Carter versus Kennedy is essentially the North and the South and also sort of the left and the right of the party, in, advised by Carter and Kennedy, having a fight about how the establishment is going to go. But you didn't really have like the socialists of the late 1970s and 80s with this meaningful seat at the table or a increased voice. Whereas now, I, I think with HRC, Hillary Clinton, and Bernie, you have like the establishment versus the populism wing of the mm-hmm. party. And, and I, I think it's different. I, I mean, really, with someone like Jill Stein, I, I think that probably the best strategy is to marginalize her. Uh, I mean, I, I, would, I would do a concerted negative political <laughs> campaign against her. Well, I think that the uh, – putting my like, political strategist – had on you know for the for the dnc firm i mean i think that absolutely they need to take this threat seriously if they want to compete or they're just going to get steamrolled um this is the they're shearing at the left um and uh i do agree by the way with the, this is a little different from the the, the 1980 and that in the in the ways that you mentioned there was some there were all kinds of things in that 1980 primary like for instance uh, carter's having gone through the camp david accords it was a lot of people who were pro-Israel didn't like it. He thought he pushed Israel too much, and that helped Kennedy in states, like New York and some other states. Uh, there were a lot of little things going on in that primary. Um, it is interesting what you say, that and now there's kind of like a socialist left versus the establishment DNC. And I also agree that, that, that there is a contrast there with history because in the, in the 1980 election – some of the policies might have sounded similar because uh, very much there were people on the left at that time for a very much like a Medicare for all or a single – what we, we would call now single payer, extreme health care programs, a uh, big increase in, in government funding for all sorts of things. There you had the energy crisis. So it was a big on energy subsidies for, for not just poor but middle class people and um, issues like a payroll tax cut that now – had already was done for for several years, uh, but was radical back then. But I think the difference is that Kennedy would have still been a viable candidate going into the 1980 election against Reagan. He wouldn't have been the socialist candidate. Like these ideas were less radical at the time, so they were like a legitimate part of the kind of the political sphere instead of being seen as kind of fringe. Now you have, and, and that is. That's some of the Clinton drift, like when Bill Clinton mm-hmm. took over the party in mm-hmm. 1992 and you had, uh, oh, what was the, what's the Democratic, uh, oh, DLC? Yeah, is DLC, that, what, right. The DLC, you have the DLC take over the party. And, and I think you bring up this interesting point, which is that 
it drifted the party rightward, and you know, triangulation was a term of art inside mm-hmm. the Clinton administration. And I think all of that led to the sort of new DLC style of Democrat, which is actually a bit to the right of where the party generally has been. Now, at the same time, of course, you have had Rush Limbaugh and Fox News and a number of different media figures starting to talk about how the Democratic Party is more left than ever. But I think if you're actually looking at the policy positions, the Democratic Party is actually not more left than ever. And that that is sort of at the core of one of their problems. Uh, What you have now uh, with the people you would call maybe socialism curious Mm -hmm. is really people who are interested in a lot of Democratic policies circa 1980. Yeah, I think it's... uh, uh the Clinton example is very interesting. He comes again out of that uh, even even more 1988, where he almost ran uh, model, and particularly after that election, where he yelled at Dukakis on the phone, like, you got to hit back, like, these guys are killing you, you know. He saw the battle, he saw the way Reagan had moved the political center, and he adjusted to it. And that's not a choice that I believe a lot of today's younger, but not just younger, because it would be a mistake to say Bernie supporters are all younger. All you have to do is go to a rally and see that's not true. But a lot of a, a, yeah, good chunk, not true. a good chunk of the younger Democrats feel this way, that those choices aren't access, acceptable. Now, contextualize, those were choices made in the environment that uh, he was in. And he used it to defeat an incumbent president that had been very popular. It was a bad economic time, but it wasn't the worst. Things were actually getting a little better towards the tail end of the election. And he won, I think, because the Clinton ideal of politics was a reach out to the suburban middle and a set of policies that were designed to be democratic, but not just helping cities. Although the Clinton administration, you know, you always get an increase in funding for cities with a, with a democratic administration, it was, it was aiming at suburbs, maybe the base being in the cities, but aiming at suburbs and small things like family leave. And one of the amazing discussions that, uh, Dick Morris, who used to be helping out Clinton, he said that Clinton was like, are they giving me credit? You're doing these polls. They give me credit for creating 10 million jobs. He said, no, they don't believe that. What they like is family leave. It's like family leave. We passed that the first week. Yeah, that's what they remember. Little policies like that. So I think, but um, that's changed. And you would, I think you saw in 2016 is that the left looked really different, but you had a candidate, obviously the wife of Clinton. So she's looking at things from that perspective and running the kind of same game. Um, one of the things that I was even blind to as an observer of the 2016 election, really until afterwards was, just that the time difference, because the 90s for me were still a much more real political time that I was aware of things involved in. But for a lot of voters that younger voters, particularly the 90s were they were not really politically aware or not as much. And one of the analogies that I really didn't think of till after the election is running Hillary Clinton was not unlike running Hubert Humphrey in the 1988 election which people would have thought if he was alive, people would have thought it was bizarre. You know, you're running a guy from who ran in 68. She wasn't running, but she was the wife of Bill Clinton running in 96. 20 years later, you're running the same name. And I think for maybe people my age, like didn't 
catch on to that fast enough. You know, and I think it is something that may have been underpinning a lot of people's psychology because there's something else happening in the electorate too that I don't feel has been properly diagnosed yet by people in the media. And I'm still trying to work through it myself, which is this phenomena that happened with people not unlike my parents who are, you know, I, I kind of libertarian leaning Republicans. Yeah, I guess it'd be moderates. You know, they're socially liberal but fiscally conservative, and they were actually leaning towards Bernie, and they were going to vote for Bernie to the point where they like attended Bernie rallies and had Bernie signs. And then when Bernie got shut down and he lost the primaries, they reluctantly voted for Trump, and it was basically built around this notion that the current political order is not servicing people. And and they thought, and and I've asked them to try to articulate out their thinking on this, they they really believed that Trump would sort of be this shock to the system that would be constructive and not destructive. Oh, I've heard that. uh, I know many uh, Bernie to Trump uh, voters. uh, uh, Certainly, I've heard heard this before, and it's a very similar vein. Shock the system. uh, Shake up Washington. Well... You know, it's getting shook, but... Uh, so so what do you think about the shaking? I, I, I haven't really gotten a chance to pick your brain on this. Yeah, the current situation in Washington. Um, yeah, it's chaotic. Uh, I was actually just doing another cast uh, before this, and we were talking about the same thing. And I still, you know, hold to the history thing, that history is useful, because even though things are a little crazy, particularly because, look, I mean, you have a person whose goal it is to be a little different, crazy, if you will. He wouldn't use crazy, but to shake things up, to not use norms. So I think sometimes the TV news, you know, cable news particularly, is like, oh, my God, this is so crazy. Well, that's exactly the strategy. So what did you expect? It's not, I don't think it's particularly effective to the goal. I think you have a president who's mostly playing to that base, who actually likes being 37 percent. It will be a disaster for any other president. I mean, when Nixon got down there, when Obama started to touch this, uh, when people didn't feel like the economy was getting much better, these were disasters for these presidents. You know, Clinton would have had a war room meeting if he got down to 37. It's the times that he got close there. Um, For this president, I think he's comfortable there. He, He likes his base. And he's got at least four years, at least for his perspective. He's already started a re-election campaign, so he probably assumes in his head that he's got more. And uh, the one thing that doesn't change is he's in the White House. So all the strategies and all the things that like the news media report on or, or the, the left comes up with or the Democrats say and all of these uh, various things, the one constant doesn't change is he's there in the White House. So he gets the media every day gets to change the story. It's perfect for him. And I think until there's another force that can get the news attention each day, um, you know, you're going to have the situation you have. Yeah, I think the Democrats would be good, honestly, to start the primary process a little bit earlier and inject something else into the narrative, especially multiple voices that can criticize Trump almost at the same level, because that is one of the benefits for the out-of-power party when they are in the primaries is that you have, you know, multiple presidential would-bes 
who are now not quite at the level of the current sitting president, but can you know sit there as a credible threat to the president. People can think about Bernie Sanders critiquing Donald Trump as, oh, wouldn't it be nice if Bernie was our president? Or wouldn't it be nice if Al Franken was our president? So I think it would be good to get those surrogates out there sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Run Iowa early. That was an idea I had in a cast uh, in February, I think. It, it, run Iowa early. Not New Hampshire, just Iowa. Just make it kind of a, a show and start the conversation. Start the conversation. People are going to complain. And what, what, you know, a good leader and Tom Perez, if he's a good leader, will, will show, uh, you know, knows when people complain and uh, what to do with that. Uh, if it's a, yeah, people are going to complain. Uh, it's, it's different. Guess what? Something different is happening to you. <laughs> so that's what I would do if they would, if I was like James Carville and they, they hired Bruce Carlson as the uh, DNC campaign consultant. But um, I, uh, you know, I, I don't think they're doing anything like it. Uh, they're just no media strategy whatsoever. And no real sort of strategy to vent out the differences because you now have you, know, you have the domestic differences where th- there are major policy differences mm-hmm. just in healthcare alone. But you also now have this looming foreign policy question of Russia, friend, adversary, foe. And it's not as divisive as on the right, where where the Russia thing really threatens to be this foreign policy problem that splits them in half. But you have a certain subset of the left who are, I, I refer to them as Russo-skeptic. Uh, they remain skeptical mm-hmm. that Russia is doing anything negative. And a lot of that ties into faith and credibility imbued into WikiLeaks. So for a number of these left publications, like Glenn Greenwald's a great example. Here's a guy who hitched his wagon to WikiLeaks and got real information and used WikiLeaks as a source. And now there are lots of questions that are ever-increasing about WikiLeaks's credibility and WikiLeaks tied to the Russian government. And if you concede that WikiLeaks is likely tied to the Russian government, what does that do for all of the work that you've done with WikiLeaks all the way down? And so I think that that is... It's an interesting problem unique to the left because of all the faith that they had in WikiLeaks all through these years. And I think what the left, the establishment part of the of the left doesn't understand well enough is that this little minority. And I think Howard Dean the other day was said whiny minority. That's that's probably going to go as well over as the uh, ridiculous uh, deplorables comment. I mean, again, I'm a little sympathetic because I also know from just general watching politics. What do you do? Do you just not say anything, not criticize somebody you disagree with? But, but yeah, you, 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 you end up saying these things like deplorables that are going to go viral. What you're trying to do, I think when you say that is to shrink them. But the real issue is you don't need a lot of people to lose an election. So that uh 10, 15%, I mean, what would you put the number at? If, if, if we were to actually, I don't know if we've done a if it's possible to do a good enough job of defining this group, but if, if it's this group of really progressive left who, who might be kind of Glenn Greenwald, uh, you know, again, they want like single payer health care, but they also didn't like Hillary Clinton. They maybe don't like Trump. They also want to shake up things in Washington. I mean, what do we think about a percent there of the American Man. electorate? Of the American electorate, not of the Democratic Party. Oh, you could say the Democratic Party. I mean, people could do the division. Maybe it's easier just to say of the Democratic Party. 
Yeah, yeah. If I'm looking at the Democratic Party, I would say realistically that percentage is somewhere around 30 percent. I guess I could even shade it more like anywhere between 25 percent and 35 percent. And then you also have the floating independent demographic who I I think are not necessarily as centrist as the left and right popular consensus is. There's this idea that you have the independents who sort of swing with the wind and the implication is that they're kind of centrist leaning. But I think that they are a little more anti-establishment leaning. And and so the swing that you see with the independent bloc in America tends to be more, I want something new. I want to change a pace. And so that means that their politics could really go anywhere. They, they do move with the wind a little bit. And so you could see this drift from Trump to Bernie or vice versa. I'm talking with Chris Novenbrino of Don't Worry About the Government. He's also quite a political analyst. And don't forget, he is the author, the creator of the theme song for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics that we play. So if you have any music uh, that you'd like, let's say you have a podcast. I know many of my listeners do. You need music for it. Go to Chris. www.don'tworry.tv talking focusing today mostly on the left and just a little warning to listeners who might be a uh, you know Trump supporter or more on the right you know we're not ignoring you today but maybe we are a little bit because we're just focusing on this side because i think one of the important lessons that i don't hear a lot of discussion about uh, at least on tv media is the split of the left that really was a big part of the 2016 election and still seems to be present um, let's, I'll talk uh, just uh, quickly about this whole concept of what is the left. You know, when we, when we use those terms, the story is it goes back to the French Revolution where everybody sat at the table and you had the church and the deputies and the royal people and right before the French Revolution and those that were on the more liberal side or more popular side of things were on the left of the table. So we've just taken this political term. And I think it's one of those things you got to use because there's no other way to define things, liberal, left, what have you. But it also – I always like to point out that, especially in a long discussion like this, that it, it could be wrong because it suggests a linear movement between the two. It suggests a scale where you're all the way right or you're all the way left. But what you've been talking about, you can see that there are people who are like, yeah, I'm on the left in healthcare, but not in foreign policy and things like that. Or I'm an extreme libertarian, so I don't want any government involvement. You know, Cato Institute is nowhere near Trump on immigration, but they're with Trump on a lot of other issues. So I think it's useful to point this out, but we're generally talking about, you know, left, but it implies a connection with the rest of the left because it's supposed to be this line between left and right when what we're seeing right now is this split among the left or the liberals. Um, I find it interesting, for example, when I do talk to people who are very avid Trump supporters, you know, MAGA types, um, they're going to point out how liberals are rioting now. 
liberals are violent. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, no. I don't know any of those. (laughs) But, of course, they're looking at the TV of Portland or Berkeley. Now, Portland or Berkeley was always considered this kind of, like, fringe lefty thing. But these days, at least in the conservative media, it's being spun as they're liberals. And I think they're trying to shrink the group that's liberals. Um, So I think... uh, these are well. I think they're also trying to fringe the group that's liberal. So it's like the idea is that the Antifa protesters in Berkeley are somehow representative of your typical run-of-the-mill left-leaning voter, and I, I don't think that that's any more accurate than saying like the Bundy militia is typical of your standard, you know, right-leaning voter. Absolutely, I think that's correct. And I remember remarking to a fellow, it's like, well, if you're if you're going to take anyone who's ever voted Democrat and make them one of the liberals, you have a large group there. And, you know, what's going to happen with that is uh, I think I think on the other side of this whole thing, you, you've seen surprising amounts of resistance, of of protests at Congress office, at uh, uh, rallies in Washington, D.C. And That'll surprise you, too, on the other end. If you start shrinking what you want to make your opponents, the size you want to make your opponents in your own rhetorical universe, don't be surprised when you start losing elections because of that. Um, now, it, it so far hasn't translated into to much. I mean, I, I suppose it's involved with the slowdown of the repeal and replace. You know, Ossoff didn't win his election, although he did win the first one. It's uh, Nothing's really happened yet, but my feeling is in 2018 – um, doesn't matter if you split as a party, all of this, because 2018 is about do you vote for your Republican congressman or your Democratic congressman? Yeah, I think that allows them to patch over a lot of these problems in the short term, which is what it seems like Tom Perez's strategy is. I, I think that's a mistake. I, I think that these policy differences on the foreign and domestic side need to be hashed out, as well as. This other axis, because you talk about the left and the right axis, but I think that there's another axis that needs to be considered now in American politics, which is the establishment axis and the anti-establishment axis. So, or you could, you know, a more traditional one I've seen is the authoritarian and anti-authoritarian axis, but Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's necessarily as applicable here. I, I think that people are looking for a certain level of upstart energy people still want change i mean actually they voted for the change guy in 2008 and they voted for the change guy in 2016 as well i think people are still looking for change i mean if you look at the right track wrong track poll uh, now that one's always kind of a weird one but it seems to consistently be in the wrong direction yeah i I think Uh, there's something to that it usually is it has to be a good very good economic time to get that wrong track up But it's usually is. But, hey, listen, that's how a party wins. Any party, Republican or Democrat, you want to win, you figure out what the wrong track people are going for and you you find out. I don't know if that's being explored enough um, on the on the left. You had said earlier about, you know, Trump says build a wall. One of the Democrats, where's their wall? Not going to build a wall, but where's their issue? That's, That's succinct. That's that strong that just makes you I think people were core supporters of Bernie Sanders in a lot of cases because they just felt that connection with their issues. And it might have been corruption in politics or the anti-establishment or or it was a particular issue uh, like single payer health care college. But um, 
where Clinton's issues were more complex, um, much more complex. The only thing simple that she had was, I'm going to be the first woman president, you know, and um, that's an issue. It certainly there's a certain group that that certainly helps with, but it's not. And, and in any case that you don't have that now, what is the Democratic Party? Situation? It doesn't help you going forward. Right. So I, I think that there are two things that the Democrats have to be worried about here. So if the idea is we're going to run someone like Kamala Harris and kind of take that mantle of this will be the first woman president and she's also African-American as well. Well, theoretically, there could be a progressive candidate uh, like Tulsi Gabbard who can make those similar claims of I'm a person of color and I am also a woman and I'm also a military veteran. And I think the other thing that the Democrats have to be worried about is, for lack of a better term, a nuisance candidate, not unlike Jill Stein, only this time actually inside the party. And perhaps that could be someone like Tulsi Gabbard. Do we really think she's just going to be silent? Yeah, I know. I can't see her sitting. No, no, she's going to run. She's got so many uh, assets uh, going into politics. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who dislike her. But of course, that's the the two sides of the party. But I, I don't see how she remains silent. That's probably the strongest uh, Bernie person, um, other than Bernie himself. Everyone keeps talking about he's too old, but I don't know. He's awfully old when he ran the last time. People, you know. he's still incredibly popular. I mean that that's the other sort of elephant in the room is if the Democrats try to marginalize Bernie or say don't even consider running in 2020, and if any of that credibly gets out. Let's say they start sending emails back and forth inside the Democratic National Committee again. And for some reason, those emails leak out and they say, we need to stop this nascent Bernie Sanders wing. I think that that's potentially disastrous. So the one thing I would definitely advise the Democratic Party is do this airing out process in the open. Let people see it. Don't have anything to hide. Do not give a outlet like WikiLeaks fodder for weaponized truth yeah i think that that's uh there's a couple points there on that i think that goes back to the the open up iowa just open it up because i'm a political libertarian in that way i'm not a i'm not a libertarian but a political libertarian like let things happen it's an organic process every time i hear things like the party needs to do this or tom perez needs to do this or that that unity tour i just cringe a bit because i'm like that's not how reality happens no one told that's not how you to make run. unity right <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know it uh um Boy, that unity tour felt like a failure. That pulled me together, man. I, I was so ready. Like, I was unhappy, but now I saw these two guys getting along on stage, and now well, I feel better. I mean, for you doing Don't Worry About the Government, which, you know, has some, you know, you need you need some comedy for the cast. You know, it was actually, you were probably the only person inspired by the unity ticket. We love that sort of stuff on my show. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, what I think be, before we close here, I think that the point there's a uh, good point that I've wanted to make about this uh, WikiLeaks and the weaponized truth, and um, that to me was such a decisive weapon. And there can be a debate as to who launched it, but certainly it was WikiLeaks. We know that. Certainly, the Trump campaign benefited from it. The Russians and connections to WikiLeaks are pretty well established um it was such a decisive weapon i believe because it aimed at the right place what we've been talking about today and what the media generally is not talking about or political analysts generally not talking about which is the split on the left and it also 
it's split not just on issues, but on, uh, you know, the philosophers might say epistemology, like the how you get truth, um, how, how what is your source for getting truth? And then and it may be generational. It might be those who have been in politics a long time or who under who have been watching politics for a long time. I look at those DNC emails and I see your regular standard politics. I see a party that I know for decades probably has acted like that. Like we have to win the election. We have to pick the best candidate to win in the fall. Then it's not, this isn't like a democratic circus. You know, this isn't a, uh, it's not the idea to be um, uh, this way. And, but I'm well, well aware that the exposure of those emails um, is so damning, especially for a group that's just entering politics or hasn't been a, a around and doesn't uh, doesn't care about party mechanisms. In fact, would probably like to see parties gone, you know, um, and it's just so different. That's one difference, I think, between two sets of people. I also think the difference is the belief in reading emails that you know came from the source. So that's like ground truth. In this world of like fake news and difficult to understand, social media, all kinds of things, everybody has their own channel. That was like ground truth, as close as you can get. We know those were the emails of the DNC. We know they said those things. And the difference is that someone like me, I look at the first thing I say is like, yeah, well, they're releasing this. They're not releasing the other. So you're only seeing a portion, right? And I focus on the the what's been released and the reason why only this was released. But that's not the majority of people. The majority of people are going to read those emails and not worry about why. How come I'm only reading this and not every email that was published by every campaign during the election? So there's a lot of fake being thrown around these days, it's a word that's getting used a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. uh, in wrestling, there's a term called kayfabe, which is actually pig Latin for fake. Uh, it's the idea of keeping this illusion up. And, and I think a lot of politics, and I view it this way, and I, I know a lot of people who are younger view it this way too, a lot of politics is BS. It's malarkey. It's artifice, and it's a lot of pomp and circumstance, and there is an illusion of democracy, not unlike the 2015 primaries, where it feels like, okay, we're going to have a primary process that's open, and theoretically, anyone can run for president, but who's going to be the Democratic nominee? It's going to be Hillary Clinton, guys. We are. This is a conclusion in search of a legitimization process. But I look at the emails inside of the Democratic Party versus this fake politics, and I sort of see... The reality of the Democratic Party that I had always suspected, mm -hmm. I had always had sort of peripheral circumstantial evidence or, you know, this thing sort of seems to indicate this and this seems to indicate this. And it sure feels like the process is tilted against Bernie Sanders and he's certainly outperforming despite that. But then to actually see that in hard writing I think for a less refined reader, it's enough to turn them off from the Democratic Party entirely. And I think therein lies the problem, uh, is that you are right to go, oh, here's the issue that this is just a targeted release on the Democratic side. This is not being done just for the sake of transparency. There's something else afoot here. 
But then there's the other fact that this is still the truth. This is still who these people are. It's just unfortunate for them that when the mirror comes up, the reflection is something they don't want everyone else to see. Oh, right. I mean, and I think that's that's the reason why it's such a powerful weapon right there, because uh, you, it's, it's ground truth. And in as as close as as you can get, no doubt um, it, it's it, it. But I guess uh, uh, I, where I go with it is that it almost puts behooves the user, the viewer to think about the other question. Because it's all on them at that point to think about it. Because they're only going to see they're only seeing one truth. You know, for instance, there was no uh, they didn't see Tad Levine or Jane Jean Sanders or uh, uh, Tulsi Gabbard or or the RNC uh, attacking Trump or what Trump said during in his emails during the campaign. Uh, you know, it was only it was only the the one side that came out at all and. Because something's real, we obviously value it higher, and it's up to the. It's really, and it's going to be a difficult thing for a difficult exercise for a good news reader, or what have you. But it's uh, it's going to be up to them to say, oh yeah, but I'm not seeing everything else that could be so so damning, you know. So it's uh, it's an interesting um, uh Look now, a quandary. Yeah, it's a quandary, it's, it's and it's, it's also not as new as what people think. That WikiLeaks release, the entire Watergate, the entire Watergate scandal had to do with dirty tricks in politics and the release of damning information. Sometimes fake letters, <laughs> like they would take a, a Nixon operatives, they would take a Muskie letter and have him attacking uh, Scoop Jackson with a really really nasty attack like calling him a drunk or something on his letterhead which again there was like you know of course this was fake this is more a fake news example but and then scoop jackson campaign responds not knowing it really wasn't musky it was some trick all sorts of things like that happen um fear and loathing on the campaign trail 1972 uh hunter thompson is a great book for that but now years after his book was written what we do know it, from the Watergate scandal, particularly and everything after, is that they, these were Nixon operas behind all of this stuff. So there were also times when you saw only one element of the truth. It, it really all, more often was fake, but sometimes it was just simply exposing things that had happened, but in an inopportune time. Um, so uh, again, I, I go back to even that, even WikiLeaks, as damning as it was, I think a little better reaction to it and a little better... Um, acknowledging that there was a group of people that cared about it might have been better for the Clinton campaign than what they did. Yeah, I mean, even an emphasis on more transparency inside of the DNC mm -hmm. and just more tr having transparency initiatives being a major talking point for the Democrats going forward, particularly as you have a president who seems to be, let me just say, hiding something. Yeah. So if the Democrats were using as a regular talking point all through this year and all through 2018 stuff about the emoluments clause, just issues around transparency, I think you can actually build a pretty broad coalition on we are going to increase governmental transparency. And if you're looking for a tangible, go back to my other talking point of we're going to create national Wi-Fi. We, we already have the antennas. A lot of the infrastructure is already in place. This is fairly 
easy to do. It wouldn't be broadband. It wouldn't be home internet. It would be standalone Wi-Fi mm-hmm. so that everyone has basic access to internet. Those two talking points alone, I think, could get the Democrats a lot further than a better deal, which has the problem of being not good and not best, but better. Like, it's kind of like in between. Like I, I feel like the Democrats have still very extant messaging issues that they haven't gotten their hands around. I think uh, we could leave it there. Is there any point that you really wanted to say and I didn't give you the opportunity? Well, I have a question for you. You said before we got on the air that you thought Trump was going to make it all four years, and I don't think he is. So I want to know why you think he's going to make it all four years. Listeners to the premium cast of My History Could Beat Up Your Politics, or Don't Worry About the Government, will hear the answer to that question. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.